when I tell people what I do for a living, working on ESG, environmental social governance investing solutions, the inevitable follow-up question I get is, what are you talking about? So other than this not being confidence-inspiring for my ability to explain things, if you listen to our teaser trailer, you would have actually heard my own family doesn't know the answer to that question. And even hearing one of our expert analysts at MSCI give sort of a cocktail party description of what environmental, social, and governance investing is probably doesn't quite do it justice. So in a future episode, we're going to get into some of the history of ESG investing, where it started, how it's changed, what kind of investing we're actually talking about. But for today, for our first episode, I think we're going to dive right in. And we're going to dive right in by looking at our annual trends to watch. Every year, MSCI ESG Research publishes a report, trends we're watching for the coming year, if you want some light bedtime reading, it's on our website, msci.com. So in January of this year, I interviewed our global head of ESG research, Linda Ealingley, and that's what you're going to hear now. Hopefully, we'll hear a lot more from Linda in future episodes. For now, this is the conversation we had about the top ESG investing trends in 2018. So here it is. Hello and welcome to ESG Now, the MSCI ESG research podcast covering environmental, social, and governance trends, news, and research. Today, I am talking to the global head of ESG research, Linda Ealing Lee, about our annual 2018 Trends to Watch paper. Hey, Linda. Hey, Matt. Let's get right into the trends themselves. We uh, we picked five this year, uh, and we'll start with emerging markets. And I'll paraphrase from the report. We wrote um, that institutional investors looking to capture growth in emerging markets and control for risks in those markets will look to ESG as a tool to separate the wheat from the chaff. So first, we're talking about some specific risks, but really, how do you think that this trend unfolds? Well, uh, you know, emerging market investors have always had a unique challenge, right? They have to find companies with really strong management quality when a lot of these markets are typically um, have less information or at least less reliable information that, that investors can use. Um, and, and one of the conundrums that we hear a lot um, is whether investors should uh, change or maybe lower their standards for companies in emerging markets to match uh, the less uh, mature institutional or, or market environments in which um, uh, these companies are based. Um, and so in our report, you know, we show how it's possible to use ESG sovereign ratings of countries um, and ESG ratings of companies to sift for those companies that, that seem to be outpacing uh, their home country when it comes to their ESG profile. And we call these country uh, outperformers so that that would then be the wheat. You know, what we've seen historically um, through our uh, ESG indexes is that high ESG-rated companies, particularly in emerging markets, have actually outperformed the, the lower-rated companies. Um, so 2018, you know, it, it really is a milestone uh, for emerging market investing. Um, it is the 30th year, uh, 30 year anniversary of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Um, plus, this is this year, you know, we'll be adding um, the China Domestic A shares to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Um, so it's a it's a really exciting year. And and but given the the complexity and the diversity of the 24 countries that make up the emerging markets investment universe, um, we also think that um, 2018 
2018 will be a, a turning point um, because investors um, uh, and the companies in emerging markets um, are going to find that ESG signals are becoming part of uh, the, you know, you can think of it as the essential toolkit for, uh, for emerging market investing. The next trend was on climate. Uh, it was really maybe more about asset allocation. Uh, and we wrote in the report, uh, investors have focused on carbon footprinting companies in their portfolio, but that leaves out potentially half the equation. And in 2018, scenario testing will show how asset allocations are affected by different climate shocks. So we know investors have learned a lot from carbon footprinting, but we're saying it'll be different in 2018. Explain how. Well, over the last couple of years, you know, we, we've definitely seen a surge of investor attention um, to the risk that climate change actually poses to their portfolios. Um, and, and you have to start from somewhere. And, and typically, um, investors have started with, you know, what, what I would call a, a bottoms-up approach, right, where you're kind of summing up the, the carbon emissions that are either associated or embedded um, in, their, um, in their equity portfolios. Um, and um, what's actually, I think, kicked off a whole other level of thinking um, and discussion among institutional investors around the world is, is the guidelines that were issued um, a few months ago by uh, TCFD. This would be the Financial Stability Board's uh, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Um, so the TCFD recommends that companies and investors apply scenario analysis to assessing climate risk. But the problem, of course, is, is quite frankly that no one actually knows how to do this. But I think that 2018, investors are quite determined to make a start. And, and so in the report, um, what we've done is we, we demonstrate one fairly simple approach of taking some projected long-term uh, GDP impacts on different countries and different regions uh, from climate change, and then we applied it to a portfolio uh, with a typical uh, asset allocation. And I think it's really instructive um, to see how asset classes compare in terms of uh, well, how much they are, at least today, exposed to the countries and regions that over the next couple of decades are actually going to suffer the most from climate change. So scenario analysis, I really think that that is actually going to dominate a lot of the discussions around climate risk in 2018. So for our third trend, we focused on fixed income, and we wrote that in 2018, push from leading asset owners implementing their ESG frameworks across their asset classes will coincide with the pull that ESG could add value to credit analysis. So you focused on sort of a push and a pull over our fixed income. Can you elaborate on what those mean? Yeah, so when we say push um, and pull factors into ESG investing, the, the push factors, um, you know, I would characterize that they're essentially market demand, right, or climate demand to integrate ESG. Um, and, and there has traditionally just been a lot greater adoption of ESG into equity investments and, than fixed income investments. Um, but an increasing number of asset owners um, have now, you know, over the last couple of years, really developed and honed their ESG policies and frameworks on their equity mandates, and they've now started to kind of extend them across uh, the full portfolio and, and to fixed income mandates. Um, another push factor that we're seeing um, is competition, um, particularly uh, in, in products for the retailer or wealth space. There are just far fewer ESG options on the market today for fixed income funds um, in terms of ESG options, and, and a number of the managers then are trying to kind of fill that void. Um, what is um, 
you know, more nascent um, is the pull factor. And um, that I think is maybe from a researcher's perspective much more interesting because I would characterize the pull factors, you know, investors being attracted to using ESG factors because uh, they can improve uh, returns. Um, so a piece of analysis we published recently looked at all the companies in the MSCI World Index that over the last um, 10 years have experienced a 95% or more fall in share price over a three-year period. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty catastrophic drop. Um, and when um, and what's interesting is that when a company has the lowest ESG ratings, um, their chances over the next three years of being one of these companies that suffer a catastrophic fall um, is actually three times uh, greater than, than for a company that has um, the, the highest ESG ratings. So, you know, you can really think of um, a low ESG rating as signaling a kind of event risk that hasn't yet matured, so events that will likely materialize and mature over time. And I, I, that's the kind of evidence I think is intriguing for fixed income investors that we talk to. Uh, we've had now a very, you know, a prolonged period of a fairly favorable credit environment, and that you know some of them are gearing up for for a point when when credit conditions might deteriorate. Deteriorate, and then um, you know I think that that's actually when ESG factors are going to emerge uh, as an edge for for credit analysts who actually know kind of how to use ESG factors. The next one I thought felt controversial to me when we wrote it, so I'll quote it directly. In 2018, the disclosure movement reaches a tipping point. Investors may need to find broader data sources and better signals to understand the risk landscape faced by portfolio companies. So at its core, are we saying that company disclosure isn't enough? Yeah, I I don't know whether it felt controversial, but, but I do think that it maybe challenges some um, conventional wisdom um, about sustainability data. Um, so what we're actually saying is that company disclosure is necessary, and, and we certainly need more of it, but it's actually not sufficient, um, at least not for um, investors assessing companies' material ESG risks and opportunities. I think that one reason that ESG analysis is, is such a um, such a rich field for research is because um, we are still constantly searching and uncovering a lot of really interesting new data sets and alternative sources of information, um, and that don't rely on voluntary disclosure to to measure uh, a company's ESG quality. And so, one exercise we we did in the report. Um, is to decompose our own ESG ratings into these different types of information sources. So, you know, apart from the voluntary uh, sustainability disclosures that we were just talking about, um, the other types of data inputs that we use um, in our model are our mandatory regulated disclosure, basically, um, enforcement um, databases and, and media sources, as well as over um, 100 different specialized non-company sources from um, governments, from, from acad uh, academia, and, and from NGOs, and and we found um, in this kind of decomposition that that um, just over a third, about 35% of any given company's ESG rating on average is driven by what a company has actually voluntarily disclosed in, in um, for sustainability reporting, while the other two-thirds is driven by information from these alternative sources that I just talked about. 
So I think, you know, a company can definitely influence a significant portion of its ESG signal through um, more transparency. And I think that's really important. But I think the, this exercise shows that even the very strongest um, disclosures can't actually drive the majority of the assessment um, through just their voluntary disclosure. And, and you know, I think um, you know, that's really to investors' benefit because um, what they're really looking for is an objective view of a company's ESG risk profile. And, and, and so I think that in, in 2018, I mean, for sure we're going to see um, greater corporate disclosure on sustainability issues. We just see that momentum happening. Um, but what we're also going to see is that investors are going to balance that voluntary disclosure um, because there is an increasing kind of treasure trove of big data from alternative information sources, and, and both of those are really critical um, to, to producing a more robust picture uh, of a company's ESG quality. The last trend by far had the best title. Uh, we titled it The Year of the Human. It's also a little bit contrarian relative to a lot of other content in the media right now uh, around AI and automation. And again, paraphrasing from the report, uh, we talked about the sort of unintended consequences of automation with an emphasis on high-skill human labor. And how do you think investors are going to deal with that tension between automation AI and human capital? Yeah, um, so we love this trend, or at least this one's my favorite. The, the robots are coming. Um, actually... <laughs> Actually, they've already come, right? And a lot of industries are already feeling those effects. And and the funny thing is that people are discovering that to reap the benefits of AI actually requires humans who can learn new skills for the roles that are being redefined. Um, and, and for investors, I mean, what they really want to know is which companies are actually better positioned to manage the this, this skills transition that is coming or is happening right now. Um, and the answer to that is that it's actually really hard to know. Um, human capital data is a closely guarded secret uh, in companies around the world. What little data does exist um, and that we've collected, I, I think it's pretty intriguing. It's, it's, I think it's more sparse than it, it needs to be or should be. Um, but we, we did a couple of different pieces of analysis for the report, but, but one piece of analysis we did um, is to divide the uh, roughly 1,600 companies on the MSCI World Index into leaders, followers, and laggards um, based on uh, human capital metrics that, that we think give us some indication, at least, of, of what the, the level of managerial attention to skills enhancement. So things like um, training hours, workforce engagement surveys, and, and, and so forth. So, so we looked at a four-year period, um, and what we found was that, that leaders that seem to be investing a lot into skills enhancement practices, um, they, they, over this period, enjoy higher productivity growth, so it's so a more positive change in revenue per employee than their industry peers. Um, and in contrast, you know, you have the companies that show at least no evidence of any kind of skill-enhancing practices. Um, um, you know, they experience a slight drop in, in productivity growth. So a couple other pieces of analysis in, 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 the, in the report, but, um, but, you know, honestly, you know, we just see a lot of momentum coming into 2018 of investors showing uh, 
a growing appetite um, for, for investing in human capital. Um, there's, for example, a movement now to, to ask the SEC to mandate disclosure of more human capital information. Um, and, and I think that investment strategies that, that favor companies that are maximizing their talent pool through, through a diverse workforce um, continues to, to, to attract assets. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think, you know, the robots are here, but, but I think that what investors are increasingly interested in um, is which of the companies um, in their portfolios actually have the humans who can best harness um, these machines. So that was Linda Ealing Lee covering our five 2018 trends. Now, given that 2018 is actually starting to wind down already, uh, some of these things may have actually come to pass. Some are in process and some maybe we missed. But we're going to come back around at the end of the year and we'll give you an update. For now, thanks for joining us for this first episode. If you want to hear more, go to iTunes, search for ESG Now, and hit the subscribe button. And we'll be coming to you with new content every week. So we look forward to be, being back in your ears soon. If you have any feedback, questions, ideas, send them to esgpodcast at msci.com. And as always, you can check our website, msci.com, where we have new blogs and content and details about our client solutions and partnerships. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.